I'd like to just start with a quick prayer for God's guidance, for his, his help as I, I deal with a difficult passage of Scripture. Lord Jesus, I just, uh, I want it to be your message today for the body of Christ. I want it to be a message that encourages, builds up, strengthens, teaches. Lord, use these words to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what, what is the secret of a happy marriage? Anybody want to venture a guess? Well, I always say that the secret to a happy marriage is low expectations. And I say that in jest, but of course there is an element of truth involved. In the Old Testament, over and over, the prophets used the analogy of a failed marriage when describing the relationship between God and his chosen people, Israel. And of course, with God being who he is, completely just, righteous, holy, uh, he really can't lower his expectations. So in our text from Malachi chapter two, we find things have gotten so bad that the marriage or the covenant between God and his people is on very shaky ground. So we're going to take a look at what uh, at the causes of that breakdown and how those very same issues can affect our marriages and our relationship between Christ and his church today. Uh, let's read Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10 through 16. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to, the one, to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. This is the word of the Lord. I grew up thinking of this as the God says I hate divorce passage. And uh, in the current translation, it's worded a little differently. In the original NIV translation, uh, verse 16 said, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So, I hate divorce. 
and I have been divorced. Eighteen years ago, I became divorced from the wife of my youth. At that same time, I became a single father to three sons for six years before I married the lovely Miss Catherine Nelson. And during that time, um, during the time that I was thrust back into the world of singleness, I also led a divorce care ministry at another church here in town. When I would read this passage in Malachi, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, I would say to myself, so do I. Anyone who has gone through divorce knows that even in the best of circumstances, it's still difficult. It can leave a lot of emotional scars. No one enters a marriage relationship hoping that in a few years it will all fall apart in a painful divorce. But somewhere along the line, someone didn't live up to the promises that they made. So believe it or not, I chose this, this text. Uh, Pastor Evan asked if I'd like to speak out of Malachi, and I said, I might as well take the I hate divorce passage. <laughs> because I felt like I needed to look at it again. The word divorce comes from a Latin word meaning separation. And in marriage relationships, it is tearing apart what God has joined together in one flesh, according to Genesis 2. And in Malachi, we find Israel nullifying the covenant they have with God and tearing themselves away from that relationship. The primary problem is idol worship, which the prophets analogize as adultery, loving another who is not your spouse. Idolatry, uh, this is according to Dr. Garrett Hope when he taught Sunday school this summer. Idolatry is anything that gets in the way or interrupts our fellowship with God. Anything that gets in the way or interrupts our fellowship with God. Colossians 3, 5, in that passage, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and creed, which is idolatry. All of these sins are a form of idolatry. They're putting self before God. Now, I find this passage in Malachi to be of special interest because throughout the history of Israel, provisions were made for a man to divorce his wife, but not for a woman to divorce her husband. Yet, Malachi's words here are counterculture for the day placing the burden upon the man to remain committed to the relationship and not divorce. We find the analogy of marriage as representing God's relationship with his people throughout Scripture. It's both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this last month, in my quiet times, I've been uh, reading through the book of Jeremiah. So I just selected a, a quick passage there from the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, in regard to the unfaithfulness and adultery of God's people as they pursue other gods. So this is from Jeremiah. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. 
In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. So it's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament uh, with the prophets. And since I'm already wrestling with difficult passages of Scripture, I thought I might as well go the whole way and look at a New Testament passage that also can be difficult for people that uses similar analogy of marriage and the relationship between God and his people. This is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. I love that phrase, thinking of how I take care of my own body. I'd never really thought about the fact Christ takes care of his church in the same way. For we are members of his body, it continues. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There's that analogy. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So we're going to return to this passage in a few minutes, but right now let's explore what is really bothering the prophet Malachi. After reading through uh, the book of Malachi several times, I found that God's judgment against Israel can be boiled down to two basic issues. There's two basic issues there. There's disrespect and lack of love. Their disrespect for God is demonstrated by withholding things. In chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet says, You ask, how do we rob God? In tithes and offerings. That's how they were robbing God. They were taking their ill animals and, and deformed animals and using them as sacrifices or not offering any sacrifice at all. Their, their disrespect for God is demonstrated by not listening and not honoring. In chapter 2, verse 1, the prophet says, and, and now this admonition is for you, O priest. If you do not listen and you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you. Their disrespect for God is demonstrated by lying. In chapter 2, verse 17, the prophet says, You wearied the Lord by saying, all who, do do, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. I was reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, in verse 25 of the current generation, when he said, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie the same thing that happened here. Their disrespect for God is demonstrated by speaking against him. 
in chapter 1 and verse 6, the prophet writes, It is you, O priests, who show contempt, contempt for my name, contempt for the name of God. And their disrespect for God is demonstrated by questioning his leadership. In chapter 3, verse 14, the prophet says, You have said it's futile to serve God. It's futile. Their lack of love is apparent in the charges of being unfaithful and committing adultery. In verse 2 and verse, or chapter 2 and verse 13, the prophet says, Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Well, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And the result is weeping and wailing over that lost relationship. But sadly, it's not accompanied by repentance. So we have disrespect and we have lack of love. And it's the things that were destroying God's relationship with his people in Malachi. But it's also the same issues that Paul makes reference to when instructing the church in Ephesus on how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's trying to help them avoid a destructive pattern that would lead to divorce. Returning to the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the word head there, and this can be a controversial subject, but I believe when he uses the word head there, the husband is the head of the wife, it's a metaphor for an actual head. Uh, if you look in 1 Corinthians, he also talks about the body there in reference to the church, and it's an actual body. You can't separate the head from the body and expect anything to live. They may do different things, but they are intended to go together and stay together. As in marriage, the commitment of the head to the body is lifelong. Neither can function without the other. So head there is not referring to head of your own little private corporation, but it's an actual head that belongs with the body. And in the passage, Paul encourages wives to offer respect to their husbands. And this is my own personal belief, but I believe that he instructs wives in this way because it can be a very difficult thing for them to do. Referring back to the book of Malachi, disrespect when applied to the marriage relationship would involve withholding things. It would involve not listening, not honoring, not telling the truth, speaking against husbands by saying they are worthless and questioning their leadership. I'm a man, I'm just going to say it. Uh, we men need respect. I don't, I don't know why, but we do. I'm just saying it. Uh, men who aren't respected become less than men. Even us men who don't deserve respect will never grow to earn it if it's not offered before we reach that level of maturity. Disrespect by a wife will destroy a man. I've seen it visually displayed in, in counseling sessions before 
where a quick-witted wife with a sharp tongue verbally destroys her husband right within my presence. It was amazing. So the question is, ladies, what kind of person do you ultimately want to be married to? Do you want a man or a mouse? Do you have the faith to believe? This is, this is critical. Do you have the faith to believe that if you offer respect, even when it's unwarranted, now that God can mold it, that man into a person who eventually earns respect? Do you believe that God can do that? I do. Now for men, in Ephesians, the husband is told to love his wife. And I believe that Paul directs him in this way because it's something that can be very difficult for him. Referring back to Malachi, genuine love, when applied to the marriage relationship, involves being faithful and not committing adultery. Paul takes it much further than that, though, in writing to the Ephesians. He speaks of unconditional love when things get difficult, the kind of love that Christ has for his church. The lay-down-your-life kind of love, even when you don't feel like it. Loving her more than we love ourselves. It means not just physical faithfulness, but emotional faithfulness. Avoiding emotional entanglement with something or someone other than our wife. Not taking what belongs to her and giving it to someone else. It means our affection, our devotion, our free time, our gifts, our intimate communication should all be directed to our wife. Not another person, not a job, not a hobby, and especially not an addiction. So I'm wondering how many of our wives would respond that their husbands do make them feel loved, appreciated, and cherished, if I were to ask. Shall we do a show of hands? Let's not. It's a high calling, but it's what God desires to see in us men. I was reminded of this high calling of this type of love when I talked with a young man last week who is in such a difficult place in his relationship that he's totally lost hope for his marriage. He's totally lost hope. He told me that the only reason he is still in the relationship is because of his relationship with Christ. Now, is our God big enough to take that situation and turn it into a beautiful, loving relationship on the other side of the crisis they are currently in? I believe he is, and that's where faith comes in. I mentioned earlier that I was divorced, and when I look back, uh, I don't think my wife felt loved, appreciated, and cherished. I know she didn't. And regardless of what else happened in that relationship with my first wife, that's on me. That's on me. She didn't feel loved and appreciated and cherished. Moving on to what these passages can teach us about our relationship with God, we know that both love and respect are due God from his people. Both love and respect are due God from his people. 
So what does disrespect for God look like in the modern church? Adapting the words of the prophet Malachi, disrespect for God is not supporting his church in time and tithe. It's failing to pay attention to what God is saying through scripture and the spiritual authorities he has given to us. It's talking about other members of the body without knowing all the facts. It's not showing appreciation for our leaders and speaking against them in order to undermine their leadership. Disrespect. The question we must ask ourselves is, do our words and actions toward the body of Christ show disrespect for God, the God of all the universe, our Creator and our Lord? Are we an impetus for spiritual growth or discouragement in His body? And what does a lack of love in the church look like? Well, it's unfaithfulness to God. It's idolatry. We don't uh, use graven images, wood, metal anymore. So I wrestled with what does modern-day idolatry in the U.S. look like? The easy answer was things like money. Now, maybe that's because I watched so many episodes of American Greed. But when I was writing this sermon, I woke up in the middle of the night one evening with uh, an epiphany, and I realized that here in U.S. churches, our idolatry is bound up in us. We've gone from asking, what does God want, to what do I want? Where God calls for morality in our decisions and our desires, we've set aside his word for reasons why we can't, why we can use technology and what are has become socially acceptable to get what we want. We may still utter the Lord's Prayer, but in our actions we've gone from thy kingdom come, thy will be done, to my kingdom come, my will may be done. It's so easy to drift to the point that the God we are serving becomes ourselves. As I had this thought, I thought I would do some searching on the internet and see what I find about idolatry in the U.S. And I came upon an article by Dr. Daniel Pacini, and it's called The Eight Most Popular Idols in America. So this is The Eight Most Popular Idols in America by Dr. Pacini. And he discusses the difference between idols and icons. He says idols point to themselves and remove the glory from God. But icons, on the other hand, point past themselves to something greater. So we all have smartphones and computers now, and you know that with those, an icon isn't the app itself. It merely points you to the app. A spiritual icon uses its popularity to point others to God. And this goes for both the sacred and secular things. The problem comes when we allow the secular ideas and things to become idols that take away glory from God. Uh, Frank Viola once commented that when you peel back the layers of any sin, idolatry is at the heart of it. Think about that for a moment. When you get to the heart of any sin, it's idolatry. We have loved that sin more than we have loved God. Of course, the idol in question may just be something that gives you a feel-good response, or it may be an all-consuming habit. If you delayer the onion, you can see that the substance, object, 
feeling or person in which one is addicted is in reality loved more than God. That's according to Dr. Daniel Tassini. So rather than follow the example of Christ, many who are professing to be followers of Christ in this day and age are actually following social trends and their own desires. Their lives have become nevertheless not thy will, but my will be done. So we must ask ourselves, are we guilty of idolatry like God's people of old? Do we really desire God's will more than our own? That's a really sobering question for me because I find sometimes I don't. Do we really desire God's will more than our own? In conclusion, what can we take from the text today? What can we take? Well, we have a warning in verse 16, and it's be on guard and do not break faith. This is important instruction, and it's not meant as negative. Be on guard and do not break faith. It means do not listen to the lies of the enemy. Do not allow yourself to be deceived by the voices that are not coming from God the Father. And do not let Satan gain a full hold. Do not let him win the victory. The good news, and there is good news here, is that the church of Jesus Christ, uh, we have something that the people of Malachi's day did not have. We have something that Malachi, the prophet, could only see from a distance. We have been given a second chance, a new covenant, a second marriage, if you will, where we can take what was learned from the first marriage between God and his people and use it to better our own relationship. But it isn't just a second opportunity for a similar relationship. It is so much more. In our relationship with God, he himself has met the need for many of the requirements of the first marriage through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has blessed our relationship, not with occasional visits from a prophet like Malachi to instruct us, but with the constant and eternal indwelling of the Spirit of Christ to walk with us. We have Christ with us. We don't have to wait for some prophet to be filled with the Spirit to come talk to us. So there's great hope and blessing for us in this new relationship when we stay on our guard and we do not break faith. 